Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you please turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, the game plan is Genesis 18, but Hebrews 13 is where we will begin. Before I read that, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, Lord, I pray that your name would be hallowed in this earth. I pray, Father God, that you, in a greater and greater way in the lives of individuals, Father, they would see you as holy. God, that they, this world would see you rightly, They would see your marvelous perfections and be caught up in awe and wonder at the King of Kings. Lord, I thank you for your body. I thank you for the salt and the light, the representatives of Christ in this world right now. No, Father, I pray for greater faith stronger conviction, deeper passion and love for the gospel, Lord, and a hunger for your glory. And I ask, Father, with my inabilities, you would still use me, and this time in your word would be a blessing to the body of Christ, and that Jesus would be honored in this place today. Father, we we love you. We do, Lord. And I pray you would enable us to trust you in a far greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Kind of an interesting verse, one of those that if you were just reading through the book of Hebrews and you just read chapter 12 and you came to chapter 13, it might, it might seem kind of strange for that to just leap off the page of chapter 13, verse 2, that don't neglect hospitality. Now, the concept of hospitality, is it's very much a biblical concept. It's all over the place in the New Testament. It's a part of the Christian life to be people who show hospitality to strangers. But that last little piece at the end of that verse is what's so interesting. You might be entertaining angels unaware. Well, that passage may come... uh, off strange to you, perhaps, but Lord willing, after this message, you'll see that the New Testament and the Old Testament are in cahoots with one another. They're actually, there's actually one author over the Word of God, and I believe this looks back to the portion of Scripture that we're going to walk through this morning. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, where we will see Abraham entertain angels. And 
show great, impeccable hospitality. Now, I want to remind you, since we've taken a few weeks off of, of the book of Genesis and done a couple brief things and, and Easter, so on and so forth, when I think of the man Abram, Abraham, what continues to come to my mind is a man who the Lord is growing his patience. Waiting upon the Lord, there's numerous banners you could put over Abraham's life and over what we know from chapter 12, clean through his death. But that concept of waiting upon the Lord seems to be this this hovering banner over this man's life. It all kicks off in chapter 12 when the Lord comes to him, calls him away from his people, from the Ur of Chaldees, and says, I will give you a land that I will show you when we get there. Also, I will make of you and of your barren wife, Sarai, I will make of you an incredible nation. Trust me. It's over and over and over in this life of this man. Trust me. Trust me. You have every reason to, so trust me. Now, it's interesting that the Lord never tells him a time frame. He doesn't say, um, you'll have a son at this point. Now, he does in this passage that we're looking at today. He does give a time frame here. But when he first calls him, he doesn't really put a carrot out there except, now I say except as if it's something small, his word. The only thing that Abram has to bank on is the word of God. God says, follow me and I'll give you this land. I'll make a great great nation that comes from you. And as we know from the New Testament, eventually the line of Christ, we will come to the Messiah through the line of Abram. So he makes this promise, Abram seeks to follow, seeks to obey. And as we've seen, we through this study together, this man is made of flesh. This man is one that has failed at times, and this is a man who has also been strong in faith at other times. We know the whole series and the event with Hagar, where he thought, I know what I'll do, I'll help God out and get him rescued on this one, which fell in shambles and didn't work whatsoever. Abraham is a man who is much like yourself and myself because he is one who is declared just by faith and his his sanctification is progressive. He is progressively growing in his faith and in his trust in the Lord and simultaneously the Lord is progressively giving him more and more insight into the promise that he's made. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, it's kind of like this lens that the Lord continues to widen for Abraham's sake. So Abraham is able to see more and more details of this promise. At first, it was just, follow me, I'll give you a land, and there's a big family that's going to come from you, and every family of the earth will be blessed by you. What does that mean? I'll tell you in a bit. Follow me. And he picks up and he follows. And continually through chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and now 18, God is continually allowing Abram to get a bigger picture of what the Lord is doing here. Now, this particular passage we're looking at this morning has some very interesting aspects to it, different than everything we've seen thus far. If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, in your Bible with me, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So this first point, three unexpected guests. Now, I'm going to just cut to the chase on this one because for, I want to go through the rest of this in story form and understanding this narrative here, but I know this question would be coming up over and over and over again if I didn't just spearhead it right off the bat. So let me go to it right off the bat. I believe that this is a manifestation of God and two angels. I believe eventually we're going to see two angels eventually be the ones that go into Sodom, and we'll get there in a few weeks. But the very first verse says, the Lord appeared to him. This is a manifestation of God, and I believe of two angels, to Abraham. Now, the part that's difficult for a lot of folks is they say, so God is coming in the form of a man in Genesis chapter 18. And my answer is, that is what I believe this passage is saying. If you somehow can break away from that, I challenge you to do that. But what I see in the text is the Lord appeared to him and ate with him. He's dining with him in this passage. As one brother pointed out to me, he said, isn't it fascinating that you think about where Abraham's tent placement probably was, and you think of the tent placement of the warriors. Remember the warriors that we that went with him to go rescue Lot. So this was not like one little tent pitched by itself. There's a camp that these men appear at. How did they get there without being stopped by somebody? There is definitely miraculous going on in the text. That's what I want to get home before we go through the rest of this passage. Now, Anytime we come to something miraculous, if anybody goes, man, I don't know if that's possible. I just want to remind you, all things were created out of nothing, so relax. If the sovereign God can make all things out of nothing, this is not that big of a deal for the living God to do. And I take his word, add his word, and so I absolutely with all my heart believe this is the living God showing up in a manifestation of a man with two angels showing up as men as well. And you will see when the angels show up in Sodom, they certainly appear as men as well and are referred to as men in that passage also. Okay, now that I've cleared that away a little bit, let's track through. The Lord appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre. Now, appeared is an interesting word because it wasn't simply that he saw them walking towards them. It makes no no mention of seeing them come into the camp. There's no mention of them coming through guards. There's no mention of anybody worrying about them. Simply at the heat of the day, which is kind of a siesta time where they work the morning and then the very heat of the day, they are resting. Here's Abram sitting at the door of the tent and three people appear before him. Now, the response of Abram is a very, very, it makes me very curious because some folks in interpreting this struggle a bit whether Abram knew this was God or not who is appearing before him. Let me show you what I mean. Look down at the text. 
So the heat of the day, he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door. So let's, let's stop and ask this question. Who are we dealing with here in Abram? What do we know about Abram at this point? We've gone chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Sunday in, Sunday out. What are some things we know about this man? We know he's wealthy. We know that there's a large caravan that has been traveling with him. We know that he is about 100 years old. We know that he's a friend of God who numerous times has encountered the Lord, heard the Lord speak to him and conversed with him. We know that God has made promises specifically to this man. We know he has servants of his own. There's warriors in the camp. We know that he has a lifetime, at least from the time that the Lord called him in chapter 12. We know that he has a lifetime of waiting upon the Lord. That does something to somebody. That develops the character of that Christian, of that individual, of that person, when they are waiting upon the Lord. All of us, to some level, in some way, are waiting upon the Lord. We're waiting for his return. We're waiting for um, an answer from a biopsy that was taken. We're waiting for a phone call from a family member. But in in a great sense, beloved, we're waiting upon the Lord. We're trusting him with the future. We're resting in his ability and power. All of you, Abram, are waiting upon the Lord. Abram just happens to have a specific promise from God to him that he's waiting upon. So do we. And that does something to somebody when they wait year in, year out, and he does not know when the promises of God will be fulfilled, and he continually waits year in, year out. And so three guests appeared before this man, and this hundred-year-old makes a mad dash after these three people. The response of Abram makes me think that he at least recognizes there is something particular about these guests, if not a full understanding that this is a manifestation of God coming to speak to him. I think he knew that at the end of this whole discussion, but particularly at the beginning, if you look at his response and think, a wealthy man... 100 years old, how does he treat these guests? He ran to them. He bowed. Another word for this Hebrew word for bowed is he worshiped. He fell on his face before them. He prepared an absolute feast for them. He calls him Lord, Adonai, which at times, at times in the Old Testament, Some people could refer to another person as Lord. Another word for sir or showing respect to them. But you don't typically put your face in the ground before those people. So he calls him Lord, Adonai, Sovereign One. He puts his nose in the dirt. And he refers to himself as your servant. Is Abram simply acting with cultural hospitality, or does he recognize that this is actually a manifestation of God visiting him? Three guests simply appeared, and Abram sought for them to stay. I believe that Abram at least had some understanding that, yes, this is something peculiar, something different, something special. If not, that this is God himself before me. Now, we know it's God because the very first verse of the passage said so. 
The reason I even bring that up is, number one, in my studies, I saw that some folks questioned whether or not he knew it was the Lord. The other thing is that Sarah does not act as if it's God. I'll show you that after a bit. But nonetheless, these three guests appear, and Abram's first question to them is, will you stay and let me show hospitality to you? Will you stay and let me refresh you? And they say, yeah. If I show up at your house and you say, Dan, would you be so kind to have a cup of coffee? Of course I will, yes. Let's have a couple, actually. And they absolutely stay. It says, do as you have said. Now, for me, what I picture here is, is uh, Abram rushing around as soon as they say yes. Because the, the text gives that picture that his, his immediate response is not, okay, dinner will be served in three or four hours and we can sit and chat. No, there's an immediacy to it. Like he's buzzing around. Uh, one commentator said, uh, if it was an old movie, this would be fast motion that they use in this portion of the, of the story. The first thing he does is what every good man does. He asks his wife what she wants to make for the guests that he just invited to stay for dinner. Notice that he goes to Sarah. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! Three seahs of fine flour. Now, a seah was about seven quarts of flour, so three of those. So in other words, not a little bit. Three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abram ran to the herd. Please notice the immediacy, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, interesting, is it not that his first thought was, would you stay for a spot of tea and a crumpet? And then he runs, and he goes and he kills a calf, a massive pile of bread, yogurt, curds, this is a feast fit for the king as he runs and gets all of that food together for them. I find it fascinating. Again, I believe that speaks to his recognition of who he is standing before. Think about this, beloved. Abram ran to them, nose in the dirt before them, referred to him as Adonai, referred to himself as your servant, kept them, washed their feet, and prepared a massive feast before them. Now, I don't know about you. I have experienced some pretty impeccable hospitality from people in this room. But just under what Abraham just pulled off, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty uh, at the tops for everything that he just accomplished here and is bringing before these three visitors. Abraham stood by the three visitors and waited while they ate. This was a very pricey meal that he was preparing for them to show them honor. Now, do our best to put ourselves in their sandals and, and experience what's taking place in this text. Here's these three sitting with Abram. As Abram says, he's standing and letting them eat. You know, you're the guest, you go before me, you go before me. I'm not going to go before you. I want to honor you. I want to serve you. I want to show you the honor due to you. So they're eating. And the first question that they, the question that they throw out to him has to do with Sarah. 
Now, remember this. Sarah is not there. Uh, Sarah's in the tent, no doubt within earshot of the conversation that's taking place that they have been talking about. And this question is proposed. Um, Drop down to verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Please, don't miss that. I've brought it up a few times, guys, over the months, and I want to bring it up again. Each and every time the Lord refers to Sarah, there's usually somewhere in that context that he specifically refers to her as your wife. Never once refers to Hagar as your wife. That's vitally important. The reason that's vitally important is that you will have some people come and they'll take the Bible and they'll say that, um, well, this was a practice in the Old Testament by God's people and so it's a good thing. And so sometimes they'll take a patriarch and they'll see, say, look at this, polygamy was practiced by the patriarchs, therefore it has God's stamp of approval upon it. No, it does not. Be very careful when you attach that, well, the patriarchs did it, so it must be right. That will lead you down a terrible, terrible path. All kinds of things are done by the patriarchs. Remember, these are redeemed people, not perfect people. These are sinners redeemed by the Lord. And the Lord does not give in to their plan to make Hagar another wife. He consistently refers to Sarah, your wife. Now, there's something very fascinating about this passage because I don't know if you remember or not, but Sarah got her name changed at the local DMV a few chapters before. Remember that she was Sarai, princess, and now is Sarah, which basically is princess as well. Princes will come from this princess, by the way. And the prince of peace will come through the line of this princess. But how on earth would three strangers that just happened to visit know that her name is no longer Sarai? How would they know her name's Sarai? Let alone, how would they know that her name just got changed from Sarai to Sarah? See, there's some, there's some revelation. It's revealing that there's something particular about these three guests. Remember, she's within earshot. She knows that Abram's out there with three guests, and they're eating, and they're talking. They say, where's your wife, Sarah? Now, my guess, I don't know. It's not in the text. I'm looking at the white space on this one. My guess is Sarah's first thought was, how'd they know my name's not Sarah? She's been called that her entire life. No doubt people are still calling her that. Sometimes people accidentally refer to my wife, Amber Hotram, not Amber Mason, because that was her name before we got married, and that's what people knew. Uh, I have so many people in my life that don't know if I'm Danny, Dan, or Daniel. Sometimes I don't know who I am. And yet, with precision, where is your wife? Sarah. Now remember, it was God who gave her the name, so of course he knows her name. Notice he called her Sarah, not Sarah. God knows full well where she is. Don't ever, don't ever miss that part. It, is, it must be read into the text consistently. God already knows. Remember, Adam, where are you? He knows exactly where Adam is. Where's Sarah, your wife? He knows exactly where Sarah is. God is on purpose here. He's intentional. He's he's moving towards something here. Now, 
Sarah was in the tent. This was a culturally acceptable practice. Um, typically, a woman, especially with three strange men they don't know, she would not come out and she would not be a part of that eating event with those people, with those men. The men would go out to eat and she would be somewhere in the tent in another portion of it. But no doubt within earshot, because she will respond to some things she hears here in just a bit. Now, after this food, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. The very next thing is a reiteration of what God has been telling Abraham for many, many, many years now. Look, look down at your Bibles. And please notice, guys, the precision and the clarity that the Lord uses in what he says in verse 10. I'll go slow. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's never been able to have children. She's been barren up to this point. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, and my Lord, her reference to Abram, which is brought up again in Peter in the New Testament, My Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? What I want you to notice is the intentional precision of the Lord in what he says in this passage. There has been some, uh, what would the word be? Almost like the Lord's been a little bit vague in some of the things he's told to Abram. Go to a certain place, I'll show you. When you go there, your great nation will come from you so on and so forth. When he first started, remember, that's that, that smaller lens. Now he's, now he's expanding the lens a little bit. And now here, it, it's, almost like, it's almost like after dinner, he leaned closer to Abram and said, look at me right now in my eyes. Surely this time next year, I, God, will come back when I come back Sarah, your wife, your wife Sarah, the one you've been married to, the 90-year-old one who's not been able to have children or one who's been with you this whole time and planned with you through Hagar to have the child and totally screwed that up, that woman, she will have a son by you in a year when I come back. Now, what I find interesting is you can't read anything else into that. The clarity is, is just screaming from the Lord to Abraham in earshot of Sarah. Sarah, you're 90. Abe, you're 100. You will be mom and dad. People are handing you bubblegum cigars this time next year. It's a boy. And her response was she laughed. Now, the text says that she laughed to herself, so this is an internal laugh. This is kind of a response of, (laughs) yeah, sure thing. Me, Sarah, Sarai, me. Um, For 90 years, I have been unable to have children. 90 years. Maybe you missed it. 90 
years. Not once. No child. And, and, and Abe's a hundred. We just had his century birthday last week. This is not possible. So her response is laughter. Now, beloved, let us be so careful because you and I get to see the whole thing. And so it's really kind of cheating when we go back to the Old Testament state and we go, man, can you believe that? They don't believe God. Well, come on, back up for a second and just ponder. He's 100, you're 90, you've never been able to have children even in your youth, and now God says, this time next year I'm coming back and you'll both be parents with a brand new baby. Cutting her slack, all of us here would go, not a chance. You'd laugh. I'd laugh. That is ridiculous. Unless God said it, then all bets are off. I have a question for you I'd like for you to ponder, and I mean this sincerely. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to catch you in anything this time. I'm, I'm, I'm just posing a question that I've been trying to consider, and I'd ask for you to consider. Had Abram not told Sarah what God had told him just a little bit earlier, that through Sarah and Abram, they would have a child? Don't you think he might share that with her at some point during the day? And so my question is, did he not tell her, or did she not believe him? Did he tell her and she simply said, no way, no way, no way? I don't know the answer to the question, but her response does not show the reverence for God. And you go, well, maybe she doesn't know the guest is God. No, but Abram already told her, if he told her, that God already said it would be through her, a son would come. So why is she laughing? I don't know. Either he didn't tell her, or she doesn't believe him, or, my best guess, her eyes are focused on her inability and no focus on God's ability. Now, this is interesting, because once again, I don't know, uh, we, we must remember this, that God is omniscient. The text specifically says on purpose, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, and I believe saying to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh? <laughs> now, Think about what's happening here. She's over in the tent. She's on the other side of the wall of the tent. They're there. He's there with, with Abram. She laughs to herself. Nobody hears it. And then this guest says, why did Sarah laugh? Now, my guess is that on the other end of the tent, Sarah went, Hoop! It had to have just struck her. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh out loud. I... I, I didn't. I, no, I didn't laugh. How would he know that? How does he know her name? How does he know she's going to have a kid? How does she know she laughed? How does this guest know all this stuff? Because this guest is the sovereign of the universe in the presence of Abram. Now, beloved, there's a really uh, key point and principle here that we should be careful never to miss. And it's something that um, I think can kind of skate by at times, and, and we, can, we can go right by it without it being pressed into our heart, okay? 
And it's this. Isn't it amazing that the sovereign of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, who knows where every grain of sand is on his earth, is having a meal with this measly little man in history, in time, at this moment. My, my mind begins to buckle and not function too well when I think of the absolute otherness and vastness of God while simultaneously he hears my little prayer by myself. And then you take every Christian who's in prayer on this day around this entire globe, and each one he intimately is involved in those prayers at the exact same time while he is omniscient of all things. So the God of the universe who created all things, who called all things into existence from nothing, is there having a meal with Abram, his friend. That... That, that blows my mind to stop and consider the holiness of God, but also the personalness of God with his people. That is amazing to me. You know, you go to a concert and there's a really fancy, impressive guitar player or something, and you are a number. They don't have any intimate personal relationship knowing everybody or those millions of people that are cheering for them. The living God is the God of all things. He knows all things and yet knows Dan Mason far better than Dan Mason understands Dan Mason. That is a supreme being. That is a... That, guys, we are, we are on holy ground when we consider that that is the God that we're singing to with our weak little voices, to honor him. And yet in love, he sits here with Abram, reminding him of a promise he has sovereignly chosen to do out of love for Abraham and love for his people. That's an amazing reality to me, that the king of kings knows me personally, loves me personally. And knows Sarah so well that he knew she snickered inside herself at that time. And so Sarah, looking at her physical inability, laughs at God's promise. You see the title today. How many of you, now remember, lying helps nothing. How many of you sang, standing on the promises of God with laughing in there this morning? Now don't raise your hand, just I want you to feel guilty if you did that. <laughs> I was thinking about that, that song, Standing on the Promises of God. And yet here, she's laughing at the promise of God. Because she doesn't believe it in the moment. Because her focus is not on God's power, not on God's promise, but is on her inability, her inadequacy, her first response. Look at me. Not a chance. Not a chance is that possible. Now, this is what's so beautiful. The Lord, once again, swallows up her inadequacy and her doubt of herself 
with his power. So Sarah laughed, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now that statement is not simply God saying, I will enable her to have a child. It's far greater than that. This is one of those statements made by the living God. You can press out to the corners. Push this out. Because the question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Anything too hard for him? The answer is what? No, of course not. But is it simply this one predicament? No. What God's getting at is something about himself. Not about just this event. Not just about this predicament of Abraham and Sarah. He's saying something about himself. God is communicating something about him to us. To Abram here, but to Pacific Coast Bible Church right now, is anything too difficult for God? No. Another word that could be used, translated here for hard, is the word wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for God? The concept is, is there anything outside of his ability? It's just amazing to me that God, the way in which he selects to reveal his qualities, his characters, his... his, um, just the aspects of him that he chooses to reveal that through dealing with his people. So that here with Sarah, the question is, is anything too difficult for God? And she would have to say, no. And yet you laugh. And he reiterates it once again. At the appointed time, I will return and you return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. There is no question. The Lord did not check with anybody. The Lord does not ask permission. The Lord does not wait for Sarah to be in agreement with him. This time next year, son, good and done. How can God talk like that? Who does he think he is that he could speak like that? The answer, beloved, is exactly in the title that Abram referred to him when he said, Lord, Adonai, sovereign one. He is the one who does what he wants. The scripture says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Nobody puts their hand on his hand and says, stop. Is there anything too difficult for him? Answer, no. Anytime, beloved, we come before the Lord and we say, God, you are unable to do this, we are now officially falling into the line with idolatry because that God doesn't exist. I'm not talking about sinning, so don't... Don't come to me about that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the Lord has full power, reign supreme. He is sovereign. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Our Father is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It is painted in your Bible, everywhere in your Bible. And anytime some mere creature wants to tell God what he's not able to do, the Lord shows himself to be sovereign over that creature. 
We must be so careful when we say God is, and then the next words that come out of our mouth, when we describe him, we are on the brink of creating an idol and not the true God of the word. Is anything too hard for him? No. And Sarah did what lots of people do, what we do, what kids do, what adults do. She put a lie on top of a sin. God said, why did Sarah laugh? And what'd she say? I didn't laugh. Just like, just like you know, you, you, did you do this? No, Dad, I didn't do it. Just like Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, we, we were hiding because we heard you coming. And we were naked, and, and she did it. No, he did it. So natural in our nature as fallen creatures to try to cover up. And so Sarah says, I didn't, I didn't laugh. And God says, no, but you did laugh. Now, we can understand why she would laugh. If we look at all the circumstances and all the things around it, we go, well, of course, that, that seems crazy to her, so on and so forth. I know, I know. But beloved, don't forget who's the one saying this. This is the sovereign king. Just a few things for you to chew on. This is the God who created all things out of nothing. This is the God who flooded the entire world. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who took down Goliath via David. This is the God who gives, who makes parents out of 100-year-olds. And every single messianic prophecy in the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled in one individual. This is the God of amazement. This is the God of the miraculous. This is the God who does all that he pleases. That's the one who told her, no, you did laugh, but it changes nothing. I have declared what will be taking place. Nothing is too wonderful for the living God. Well, there's one principle that I want to kind of land the plane with today that I just, I want to... My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would press this into your heart. Because I don't, I, don't I don't know all the things that you've confronted this week. I don't know what is on your heart this morning. I don't know how you are doing this morning, per se. But my prayer is that the Lord would apply this to your heart. The principle that I'd like to specifically draw your attention to is verse 14. It is so very natural to give much greater attention to the inability of ourselves rather than the power of God. Beloved, I encourage you at some point to sit down with your Bibles and look for each and every time God called somebody to something and their first response was no, because I can't. Abram, you're going to have a child. But I'm 100 doesn't matter. You're going to have a child. Sarah, you're going to have a child. But I'm 90. I've been barren my whole life. You're going to have a child. Doesn't matter. You're looking at yourself. You're not looking at me. Moses, I want you to go and be a voice for me. Lord, I don't know if you know this, but I can't talk good. And the Lord said, you mean talk well, and I made your mouth. And so as you, as you move forward, don't forget who made you, Moses. 
Jeremiah, I want you to go be a prophet for me. I'm a youth. Don't you tell me you're a youth. You go in my power, not in your power. Solomon, I want you to be a king. I, I can't. I'm a youth. I don't know my right hand from my left. I'll give you the wisdom. I'll empower you. Don't you tell me what you can't do. Isaiah, I want you to be a man that's going to go and be a prophet for me. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I will redeem you. I will send you out there. How long? Until everything's desolate, but I will enable you to sustain. Jeremiah, I want you to be a prophet for me. I, I can't. I can't. Everything is so hard. They don't like me. They hate me. Oh, but your word is like a burning fire in my heart. I've got to speak it out. And the Lord's power goes continue. Paul, I want you to be continually my man. I want you to go out there and preach the gospel. I've got a thorn in the flesh, Lord. I want you to take it away. No, I want you to take it away. No, I want you to take it away. No, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. Stop looking in the mirror and look at me. I have called you. I'm the one who is enabling you. It's my power, not your power. Beloved, if there's a principle we must grasp, it's this. God does not go out looking for all the spectacular. He finds the weak and he shows his great delight and power in our inadequacy. Don't miss this, please. The Lord waited for Sarah to be 90 on purpose. to show his might and his power that the world may look at that and go, that's unbelievable. Yes, now you're starting to grasp who our God is. We see this in salvation. People go from death to life by the power of God. We see this in sanctification. People go from hating the Lord and hating the Word and hating Christ and living for sin to people who are in church on Sunday morning, who people who are in the Word throughout the week, people who love Christ, people who die for Jesus. That's the power of God in your sanctification. We see this in our daily life struggles. You get into a marital dispute. A child is starting to wander away from the Lord. And again, I need His power, not my power. And you see this in the day of absolute trauma and crisis where things fall apart all around you. You have no more tears to cry. It's still His power, not mine. And then ultimately, beloved, the hope of an eternity that's been promised to us in Christ. It's not his power, it's, or it's not my power, it's his, it's his power. Beloved, we must be so careful to just not always tell God what he's dealing with. He knows what he's dealing with. He knows you, he knows your inadequacy, he knows all that, but he still decides you are mine, and I will use you for my good purpose. May we not be found laughing at the inabilities of redeemed people, but be caught up in absolute awe and wonder at the majesty and splendor of what the sovereign God does. If you are born again, if you are in Christ, seated here right now, you are a miracle. I'm not doing the Joel Osteen thing. Don't, don't miss me on this. You are a miracle because there's no reason for you to be seated here naturally. You have been supernaturally born again by the Spirit of God, made alive from death to life. And our God continues.
and continues and continues. It's not about us getting good enough to be useful to him. It's being simply available. Because the Lord loves. Guys, I am convinced our God loves doing incredible things through inadequate people. And so I want to close before we come to the Lord's Supper. Matthew, or, uh, Psalm 27, if you would turn there with me. Simply because in my, um, in my quiet time, this was a passage I read last night, and it so touched my heart, I, I just want to leave you with it this morning, and it speaks directly to what I've been saying. Psalm 27, and just the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. If that's the case, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Father, I... I thank you so 